0: This is Recorded Future. Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 152 of the Recorded Future Podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Researchers in Recorded Futures Insect group have been tracking the increased use of automation by a variety of threat actors around the world. Much the same way that legitimate businesses use automation to increase their efficiency and productivity, the bad guys have adopted various tools to help maximize their profits and to scale their operations. They've built a thriving underground marketplace, and there's no sign that they're slowing down. Roman Sanikov leads Recorded Future's cybercrime and underground intelligence team, and he joins us to share their findings. Stay with us. (music)
0: So one of the things that we've been seeing and monitoring, and one of the reasons that we're putting out this research, is that there's been a tremendous amount of uh, specialization in the underground economy and in cybercrime. So uh, in tr- instead of um, having to do a lot of the things manually from scratch, threat actors can grab off-the-shelf tools, uh, can go through a lot of the processes that they used to have to spend a lot more time on in a relatively automated uh, and simple way and um, obviously what that's done is it's made it uh, easier and faster for a lot of the threat actors uh, to uh, carry out their campaigns and at the same time it's kind of democratized uh, cybercrime to some extent uh, to, so that people who may not have been able to be engage in something uh, serious because they just didn't have the technical skills to uh do all of the various, to implement all the various tools that are necessary for an effective attack. Now, with a lot of those tools and services being off the shelf available and a lot of them being automated, uh, it makes it a lot easier uh, for people to become involved in this uh, illegal activity.
1: Yeah, it really strikes me that this is one of those examples that when there's there's a demand for a service, someone will step in and and fulfill that demand, even if it happens to be Uh, in an underground criminal market.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the interesting things is that uh, also not only are the services available, but as these threat actors have become more sophisticated and more specialized in specific tools, their customer service has improved. Um, Again, I remember when it was really kind of a crapshoot when you bought a tool from a threat actor, whether it was going to work, to what extent it was going to work. Now they actually have um, uh, customer support, for many of the tools that they are selling. um, And they're really concerned about the reputation of the tool and of their service.
1: Well, one of the things that you do in your research here is you outline um, a variety of the types of tools that uh, these folks are using, that they can use to automate the various tasks. Let's go through them one at a time together, and uh, you can describe to me what's going on here. You start your list with breaches and sale of databases.
0: Right. Um, we tried to do this in a um, somewhat narrative way so that it was a little bit easier to follow. The report that we're putting out now is going to be the beginning of a series of reports uh, that are going to go deeper into each one of these topics. So this initial report kind of outlines the topics we're going to cover, explains what their uses and why they're important, uh, provides some uh, technical uh, and mitigation descriptions. Uh, but then throughout the year, we're going to publish fuller reports on each one of the topics. So mm. we started out with breaches and the sale of databases because it's one of the things that I think most people are most familiar with. So recently, a lot of people have heard about the Chinese hackers who were charged with um, uh the breach of Equifax. Uh, so, again, it's one of those things that a lot of people are familiar with. But I think a lot of people don't realize the real danger and what it is that the threat actors are really getting from these uh, breaches and how, the at least on the criminal underground, how these breaches can be monetized. So What we go into is, again, the type of credentials that are frequently found on these types of breaches, the way that these breaches are uh, sold on the underground forums, uh, various auctions and things like that. And then what... they use that information for how they can then move on and monetize and use it for example for business email compromise uh, which is uh, one of the most uh, uh, damaging forms of, uh, of e-crime right now um, I think it was the FBI that put out that uh, business email compromise uh, um, has uh, grown significantly over the last few years and is costing companies billions of dollars uh, and a lot of that does start with uh, information that is obtained um, uh, from breaches.
1: Is it fair to say that, that these breach databases are, are sort of a, the fuel that drives a lot of these other things that are going on?
0: Absolutely. I think that is a yeah, really great analogy. Uh, they are the ones that a lot of the subsequent attacks and subsequent um, fraud and the uh, hacking and all of that start out with. So the breaches, like you said, they really are a good uh, starting point uh, for the rest of the uh, cycle, so to speak. Well,
1: let's review some of the other ones that you list here. You talk about checkers and brute forcers.
0: Sure. So checkers and brute forcers are... the tools that um, uh, threat actors can then use once they have a database, for example. So one of the things that um, many of us are guilty of is reusing passwords. Um, So frequently, if they have access to information from a breach, they can then use that same login information uh, at many different um, types of uh, uh, sites, at uh, commercial sites, uh, online retailers, uh and other types of sites so checkers are typically either universal meaning they can Check the credentials for validity um, across different platforms, across different sites, or frequently the better ones are the ones that specialize in a specific site. So, for example, if you have credentials that you obtain from a breach database and you want to check it against uh, Bank XYZ, see if this individual happens to be a customer at this uh, bank or happens to, if you know that they're a customer, uh, because because that information may have been in the breach as well. The breach data, if you want to check whether you can access use those credentials to access uh, that uh, account, uh, the checker is really the way to go. Uh, with brute forcers you can use the login uh, username, uh, but you don't have the password. Uh, but again, the brute forcer will then try to uh, crack that password so that at least if you have part of the information, you're able to Uh, ultimately gain access to a variety of different um, sites, of different services, Uh, again, using the databases, using the credentials from the breach databases as the fuel.
1: Yeah, uh, some of the other ones you describe here uh, are, are, I suppose, self-explanatory. stealers and key loggers, I think most folks have a good sense for what's involved there. Um, one of them you describe is banking injects. What's going on with that one?
0: So banking injects uh, is the kind of the term that they're most frequently called, uh, but uh, essentially what it is, is an overlay. So this is where threat actors uh, take a uh, page, and it's almost almost works like a skimmer, where they will take a page that they've created that uh, redirects traffic to their own uh, command and control uh, server, but they place it over the legitimate page of a banking institution. So a threat actor believes that, uh, or it doesn't even have to be banking in some Cases it could be other uh, institutions where financial information uh, and login information is obtained from, but the individual believes again like a skimmer that they're going to a legitimate ATM, legitimate bank page uh, website. They enter the information, uh, thinking that they're entering their legitimate site, and frequently they do. The uh, bank inject or overlay is transparent, so once the information is collected. Like their username and password they are redirected to the legitimate site so a lot of times they've provided information to the threat actor without realizing that they've provided that information to the, th- the threat actor
1: and of course uh, these folks need to have their own infrastructure uh, to run these services and that's where things like bulletproof hosting and proxy services come into play
0: Absolutely. And uh, bulletproof hosting, uh, it's really, we've um, uh, looked at the count and we have over 300 different services that uh, provide this uh, bulletproof hosting. Uh, And the importance is uh, for the threat actors is that obviously uh, it takes some time to set up the infrastructure, uh, to host the malware to collect the information that they're obtaining from uh, their victims, um, and uh, really the bulletproof hosting is the place where uh, all of that is set up in a way that makes it uh, more uh, more stable, uh, more redundant. Um, so, whereas uh, typical hosting companies, uh, legitimate hosting companies, uh, if they got complaints uh, from a you know, from law enforcement uh, or from other services, stating that um, their IPs that were hosted on their servers were involved in uh, illegal activity, uh, takedown notices, for example, uh, they would comply. Uh, The whole point behind Bulletproof hosting is that they create, a lot of times, either using paperwork or using kind of redundant requests for information, they conduct a way to maintain the illegal activity, to keep it going for a much longer time, uh, sometimes indefinitely, because a lot of times uh, the uh, entity filing the complaint uh, will eventually give up because of the, um, I guess you would call it red tape, uh, that mm-hmm. these Bulletproof hosting put up in order to actually action any of these uh, takedown requests.
1: Uh, is this a matter that, that these hosts... Uh Uh, are, are physically located in countries that may turn a blind eye to this sort of thing
0: absolutely uh, a lot of times Blofer hosting is actually uh, located on servers uh, in various locations so they can uh, change uh, the uh, traffic from one to another um, and a lot of times again they are located in countries that uh, don't have uh, uh, legal reciprocity uh, with uh, the US or with uh, uh, Western European countries um, so Basically, there's very little uh, that a lot of times that uh, law enforcement or other organizations that are involved in – taking down um, illicit activity on on hosting services uh, really have very little uh, means of uh, forcing uh, these entities into uh, complying. Um, a lot of times they're actually, uh, even if they are hosted in a company, uh, in a country that uh, does... Uh, follow the law and thus have reciprocity, the actual servers um, are located uh, in places that makes it difficult to, uh, to access for law enforcement.
1: Uh, one of the things you highlight uh, in your report is that um, the, the actual marketplaces where the threat actors buy and sell these things, I mean, that, there's an element of automation with those as well.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Marketplaces uh, really kind of uh, sprung up um, in a sense because, again, because of the specialization. Uh, When threat actors who were involved in uh, hacking or gathering information, um, they then obtained the information and they had to figure out how to monetize it. Um, So uh, a lot of times that in itself was a lengthy process um, and uh, they had to go and find money mules. They had to find ways to do that as the quantity of the information that they were collecting increased for example we remember some of the big breaches uh, from almost uh, 10 years ago things like I uh, uh, think uh, Home Depot and uh, and target the sheer quantity of that information that was gathered was so vast that it became uh, easier and more cost effective for them to sell it in bulk uh, to uh, stores these these marketplaces that would then reach um, Resell it, uh, Or sometimes, in some occasions, they would uh, get a share of the eventual profit. So that made it much easier and faster for the threat actors that uh, performed the breach, that collected the information, uh, to gather that information. But it also made it easier for individuals who needed that information uh for example to obtain credit cards uh you didn't really even need to have uh, a lot of knowledge about um technical skills or anything like that, you could relatively quickly and easily uh, get into some of these shops. Uh, For example, we talk about Joker Stash, which is probably one of the preeminent uh, credit card shops right now, Um, and uh, you could uh, buy the credit cards. You could even get a lot of times the personally identifiable information of the user that is uh, uh, whose credit card you obtain, Um, I believe they sell the PII for as little as $5 on Joker Stash. And Mm -hmm. with that information, with the credit card information and with the address, email, phone number, you could place uh, orders on uh, legitimate websites using that stolen information. And one of the things that they've actually even done with Joker Stash is uh, threat actors don't even have to do that manually anymore. They can actually set up an automatic uh, an option that allows them to buy things automatically as big new breaches come in they can enter you know how much money they want to spend uh, so you know kind of set it and forget it and then come in mm-hmm. whenever you're ready and uh, grab those cards uh, and the way you go and one of the other things that they've also started implementing on the, or not implementing but making available um, on uh, stores like uh, Genesis store for example um, are the digital fingerprints of the victim machines. So here, uh, not only, because obviously uh, a lot of the retailers and financial institutions try to mitigate these threats by implementing all sorts of anti-fraud measures. Uh, for example, if uh, you typically uh, buy your property, uh, product uh, from an IP somewhere in the Chicago area or something like that, Uh, if uh, you all of a sudden uh, start buying something completely different uh, from an IP in uh, Eastern Europe, or something like that uh, some red flags might uh, might come up might be raised uh, whereas places like uh, shops like Genesis uh, store they actually not only sell you the credentials that you need uh, to log in and to make those purchases but they're also with the plug-in that they offer on their site they also give you the digital fingerprint of the victim machine where this information was obtained so you basically masquerade Rating as the victim and to the store, it looks like you are the legitimate victim. You're coming from the same area, maybe the same IP. Your machine looks identical, uh, so you're using the same operating system. There's cookies uh, in your browser, uh, and again, it really helps them circumvent a lot of the anti fraud and makes it a lot easier uh, and faster for them to actually monetize. Uh, these uh, credentials uh, as uh, opposed to the manual way that they used to have to do it in the past.
1: Yeah, it strikes me that it's really sort of a a triple threat here through automation. I mean, they can increase uh, the volume of, uh, of attacks, they can increase the velocity of the attacks, but also the reliability of the underlying services to keep them up and running.
0: Absolutely. And again, I think one of the other things that is kind of scary about this is because so many more of these things are automated or are off the shelf, so to speak, commoditized. Again, individuals who, for whom uh, technological know-how may have been a barrier in the past, um, it, it may not be a barrier anymore. That's not to say that um, anyone can be involved in these things, obviously, but the threshold to become involved in cybercrime has really been lowered by the availability of a lot of these, uh, a lot of these tools. Again, in the past, you had to develop your malware. You had to find loaders that worked with the malware. Uh, You had to find vulnerabilities uh, that you can could use to penetrate a system. Now, again, you have loaders that are readily available. You have the cryptors that will package the malware and make it so that it's much less likely to be spotted by an antivirus system. All of these things are readily available. Uh, it's not something that individuals have to develop and have to uh Have to kind of uh, spend time on, uh, and it's not something they really even have to understand very well because uh, a lot of these services do a lot of that for you and provide detailed instructions on how to how to use those tools and services.
1: Yeah, the report does a remarkable job of laying out all of the elements here. What are the take-homes in terms of organizations taking this information and then, you know, using it to better protect themselves? What sort of lessons would you like them to walk away with?
0: Um, So uh, with each one of the sections, we do have mitigation, and obviously mitigation differs depending on uh, what tool you're looking at or what service you're looking at. But I think what we're hoping that uh, uh, the readers will take away is a better understanding of what the threat is. Uh, For example, again, uh, we've heard, I think a lot of people have heard so much about breaches and databases, but really didn't understand what that threat was. The same thing with marketplaces. For example, we have, um, uh, we speak with clients uh, who uh, say, well, we see that some of our credentials are being uh, sold on these marketplaces, uh, but what does that mean to us? Like, uh, how, uh, what should we do? Um, How is that a potential threat, if it is a potential threat? And for example, on the marketplaces, one of the things that we've been telling people is that they really have to focus on um, any domains that are internal domains that really, obviously, everyone wants to keep their uh, customers and their clients uh, safe and secure. But a lot of the real damage actually comes from when uh, their employees' credentials um, are being sold on some of these marketplaces or are being included in some of these breaches. Um, because, again, once you have access to uh, – as more and more individuals are working remotely, uh, they may be working from uh, from their home computer. They may be working from even a you know, someone else's computer at home. We've even seen people uh, logging in remotely uh, from – public computers, uh, and a lot of times that information is then gathered, uh, intercepted by the threat actors, and can be used for escalation of privileges uh, and to really penetrate uh, the company or the entity uh, and do some serious damage. So I think the takeaway is really that they have to monitor uh, this activity very closely. They have to uh, scan through the breaches and to see if any employee credentials are available on any of these, uh, in any of these databases, and then mitigate that as quickly as possible. Uh, Same thing with a lot of the marketplaces and the log vendors, Uh, again, to monitor, especially for credentials to corporate networks, uh, VPN, and things like that, and to try to mitigate that uh, as quickly as possible. Our
1: thanks to Recorded Future's Roman Sanikov for joining us. The research is titled Combating the Underground Economy's Automation Revolution. You can find it on the Recorded Future website in the blog section. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.